if you talk to older people, maybe your parents or grandparents, they were able to experience a, a typhoon that's uh, this strong maybe once every 10 years, for example. And nowadays, we're experiencing it every year. Japan is a country where everyone experienced so many natural disasters, of course earthquakes, but at the same time uh, the big typhoons and so on. People already feel the impact of climate change. People also see how that easily affects their daily life. And then of course, if that gets stronger, then definitely their children, their grandchildren generation will definitely suffer. This is season 12 of the Sustainable Asia podcast, mapping the Asia plastic crisis. I am Bonnie Ao. And I'm Marcy Trent Long. Our team at Sustainable Asia partnered with the Heinrich Boll Foundation with support from Break Free from Plastic Asia Pacific to produce this series. Super typhoons are hitting East and Southeast Asian nations like Japan and the Philippines really hard. According to a 2016 study published in Nature Geoscience, the proportion of Category 4 and 5 storms has doubled in parts of Asia over the last 37 years. And most experts agree that as ocean temperatures rise with global warming, tropical cyclones are expected to keep building in strength and intensity. We felt that a season mapping Asia's plastic crisis wouldn't be complete if we didn't discuss climate change. So, what is plastic's carbon footprint? We decided to build a story weaving together the voices we heard throughout this season to uncover the links between disposable plastic and climate change. And we're better to start with a story about how a zero-waste village was created out of the devastation of Super Typhoon Yolanda in the Philippines. Years ago, in 2013, so the Philippines was uh, hit by Typhoon Haiyan, so locally known as Yolanda. Yeah, it's one of the strongest typhoons that in the world ever recorded. And according to official records, 6,000 people died in the typhoon. But at least some of the unofficial ones say that it's as high as 15,000. That was Miko Alino from Gaia, Philippines, who we have talked to a few times in this series. So uh, I think the typhoon, in a way, is also an opportunity for Tacloban to start from scratch, learn new things, uh, especially on disaster preparation. And one of these um, maybe pieces that they can learn from is how to introduce zero waste in the city. Like San Fernando, the zero-waste village that we talked about in episode 2, Tacloban City was also facing a closure order on the landfills, as the Philippines sought to shut down open dumps and clean up polluting landfills. They ordered Tacloban City to close their existing dump site, and uh, it actually became quickly congested because of the typhoon. So a few years ago, because of the typhoon, you have lots of debris where you need to Uh, dispose it uh, somewhere so they put it in a land in the dump site rather and 
they're expecting it to maybe last a few more years, but yeah, because of the debris, then became full. The dump site, which should have been closed long ago, was completely filled with waste from the wreckage brought by the typhoon. So getting on a road to zero waste was tough until in 2016. The city mayor Christina started to work with the Mother Earth Foundation, a grassroots NGO based in the Philippines that performs waste audits, training, community education programs, basically everything that you need to build a successful zero waste program. So the, the current budget that time was only enough to cover 30% of households. And I imagine the rest they probably pay someone to dump it somewhere, or maybe in a river or in a, in a waterway. We don't have enough resources. So their, their resources was only enough to service 30% of their constituents. So that means 70% they have to fend on their own in terms of collection service. And I, I think if after working uh, with uh, Tacloban City for two years, they were able to um, service 100% of the households without a significant increase in their annual waste management budget. So Tacloban City recovered from the aftermath of Super Typhoon Yolanda and now has a new zero-waste approach to their waste management. And so if another challenging weather event hits, which is expected with climate change, the city is better prepared to repair and reconstruct. Tacloban also had a significant decline in household trash, which reduced the amount of waste being transported around the city. Less transportation means fewer carbon emissions, which is good for climate change. Lakshmi Narayan from India, whom we spoke to earlier in the season, explains. A lot of waste largely still organic. And when we have no source separation of waste and motorized, centralized collection, we are actually transporting so many tons of waste across cities to landfills, polluting the atmosphere in the process. We are unnecessarily transporting large quantities of waste, which is largely moisture. Remember also that urban centers here in Asia are some of the most densely populated cities in the world. Many of these metropolitan areas don't have well-developed transportation infrastructure. So we are arguing that good decentralized models where we ensure not only source separation of waste, but uh, processing of waste at the local level as much as possible. So composting at source, so within your own house, within your own compound, ensures that we are not transporting all this waste. So we feel processes like this are going to impact climate change significantly, ensuring that the large costs in running the landfills, in transporting the waste across cities, and the environmental impact of all this is also significantly reduced. When organic materials like food and yard waste begin decomposing in landfills, they release methane, a greenhouse gas that's 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So cutting down on waste means fewer landfills and city-roaming garbage trucks that release emissions and contribute to climate change. Another city that has huge logistical issues with their waste is our home of Hong Kong. And different from Pune and some of the Southeast Asian nations, Hong Kong's waste problem is a wealthy city issue. I spoke to Angus Ho, the founder of a leading NGO in the city called Greenest Action. Angus told me that Hong Kong is a very consumable city. 
Also, life here is very fast-paced, so they rely a lot on disposables. This consumptive culture in Hong Kong, he said, is actually affecting global warming. And so, if we look back at the life cycle or the things we buy, often they're disposed of after instant use. Angus said that maybe because Hong Kong is a metropolis, it is not directly visible on the industrial side of things. But we as consumers are a big accomplice in this crisis. We're already seeing the impacts of our behavior, with more abnormalities in our weather, such as more and more extreme heat days. So I think we are under extreme urgency. Angus highlights an important point: we as consumers choose single-use plastic packaging. And because plastics are made of fossil fuels, simply buying products that are made of plastic increases our carbon footprint. Pramakumara from the Institute of Global Environmental Strategies explains. When we look at plastic, we look at in the plastic pollution for the oceans. So that is mostly significantly discussed these days. But、uh, also, we found that、uh, there is a very huge connection with the plastic and the climate change. A recent publication called "The Hidden Cost of Plastic Planet" was released by the Center for International Environmental Law. That report estimates that plastic production and incineration will add more than 115 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. This show a huge relation with the plastic and the greenhouse gas throughout the plastic waste life cycle. We can see a lot of greenhouse gas emitted at each stage of the plastic life cycle, from the fossil fuel extraction and the transport. And the plastic refining and manufacturing. So then, what should we do to reduce plastic waste and the greenhouse gas? We need to systematically shift from the、uh, to slow the growth of plastic production. Lily Fuhr, who we interviewed earlier from the Heinrich Boll Foundation in Germany, also has a similar opinion. I think the most important task ahead of us right now is stopping the build-out plans of the petrochemical industry. Because if we don't manage to stop the build-out of ever more infrastructure to flood the market with more plastics, nothing we can do end of pipe when it's already become waste will actually have the necessary effect. As plastic production grows, it will lock in new fossil fuel infrastructure that will continue the cycle of emissions growth. But the jury is still out with some experts on whether plastic packaging actually is a better alternative to glass or aluminum to reduce carbon emissions. Lakshmi Narayan earlier talked about the carbon footprint of transporting waste, particularly organic waste, around urban areas in Asia. Ashwin Subramaniam of GA Circular in Singapore has a unique perspective. I think, from what we have been seeing, there's a lot of studies that have been done,、uh, not necessarily in the Southeast Asian context, but there have been studies that have been done in in the U.S. and in, and in the EU,、uh, which show that plastics do have benefits because they don't have that you know the same amount of weight per unit of product that's being sold, and therefore, in terms of transportation costs, in terms of even production costs, they、uh, create less emissions as compared to some of the more traditional products like glass, for instance. 
what I would personally love to see is a, um, a life cycle analysis and also a comparison uh, between selling certain products in plastic bottles versus selling it in some of the other typical types of materials, but done it at a very local context, for example, in a few countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, how does that really change? I think some of these studies would really help to understand what is the um, climate change potential for switching from one type of packaging to the other. Alongside comparing plastic to alternative forms of packaging, industry and numerous entrepreneurs have also been looking at the feasibility of bioplastics. So I asked Vaughn Hernandez of Break Free From Plastic, is this an effective way to make lightweight packaging not made from fossil fuels? No. Uh, well, uh, industry would love to see and hear bioplastics uh, promoted as the alternative, but there's two problems associated with bioplastics. One, if they're made from what we call bio-based materials like maize or sugarcane, you can imagine uh, large-scale uh, farming would create new problems, right? Imagine swaths of agricultural land not being devoted to manufacturing of single-use plastics. It's crazy, right? Vaughn said the second problem is that bioplastics reinforce what he calls a throwaway mentality which would bring us back to the climate change impacts we discussed earlier of waste transport and landfill emissions. Because people think mistakenly that because it's uh, compostable plastic, it's biodegradable, I should be able to throw it out there in the open, right? And it will take care of itself. But the, the thing is, many of the so-called biodegradable plastics require a specific specialized industrial uh, facilities, right? <laughs> they do not degrade on their own. So these are not solutions. What it does, of course, it just suspends the inevitable fate of many of these products. Eventually, they become waste, right? And worse, they break down into microplastics. Some bioplastics are designed to break down in water, for instance, so they're marketed as not posing a risk to ocean marine life. But eventually, they become microplastics that may stay in the ocean forever. But something we discovered in our research in the Plastic Atlas Asia edition is that the microplastic in the ocean actually frighteningly can influence climate change. When we asked Lily Fuhr about it, she explained that We've got these tiny organisms, phytoplankton and zooplankton, functioning as part of that biological carbon pump that absorbs carbon dioxide and eventually stores it in the deep oceans for decades or millennia. And if these tiny organisms are affected through microplastics, that reduces the ability to transport the carbon to the depths of the oceans. And that's a huge risk for all of us. It turns out that some sea creatures that feed on phytoplankton and zooplankton, or algae, the waste excreted from their bodies, which contains the carbon, are dropped to the bottom of the ocean. So this process of carbon sinking actually acts as a crucial role in fighting climate change. The fact that we have huge amounts of microplastic in our oceans puts the sink functions of the oceans that they have in the climate system at risk. The biological carbon pump is a vital part of a global climate system. It's vital. It's really important for keeping our climate stable.
So plastic pollution impacts climate change in so many ways. Waste transportation costs. Landfill emissions. And plastic is made out of fossil fuel, and the production and consumption means more carbon emissions. And now microplastics may be impacting the ocean carbon sink. But our focus during the season has been on disposable plastic waste—the kind of plastic that is convenient. But is it really necessary for our daily lives? Now, during the COVID pandemic, this question is worth reflecting on. Von Hernandez and Satya Rupa Shekhar from Break Free from Plastic Asia. COVID itself has been is an outcome of our broken relationship with nature. We need to think of measures that do not perpetuate our reliance on on fossil fuels, because the approach is not necessarily an alternative material. It could be an alternative、uh, system, a way of thinking, an alternative way to deliver products to market. I think in the United States, we've already seen disposables taking over the market. Right? We don't want this.、Uh, Replicated in full in Asia. We have to learn from the mistakes of the West, implement alternative systems and solutions. If you really look at the realities of so many of our countries, like in India, right, about thirty percent of our populations in cities actually live in slums. Right in really congested spaces where you cannot have multiple bins for segregated waste, and of course, then there are、uh, all of these other religious and cultural barriers to some of these materials actually being being handed over. In Indonesia, for example, we see that、uh, diapers, baby diapers, right,、uh, are not usually given to the municipal waste collection system, but are discarded in in the river. And so a lot of this stuff is burnt, right? And then you directly expose women and children to all of these、uh, pollutants that are in the plastic products, right? All of the heavy metals, the dioxins, the furans, which immediately cause respiratory disorders, right?、Um, and and it's not about whether we can collect and recycle this material. It's just this material is just so inherently toxic and so hazardous.、Uh, we just need to stop using it. That concludes our season mapping Asia's plastic crisis. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you to our partner, the Heinrich Boll Foundation, for allowing us to use the formidable research behind their new upcoming publication, Plastic Atlas Asia. Heinrich Boll Foundation is a green think tank from Germany and has more than thirty offices around the world. They produce a series of excellent publications, including Ocean Atlas and Agriculture Atlas. Their most recent publication, Insect Atlas 2020, contains helpful facts and figures about these friends and foes in farming. Also, thanks to the support from Break Free from Plastic Asia Pacific. Break Free from Plastic is a global movement of 11,000 organizations and individuals worldwide, including Sustainable Asia. And as you can guess from the name, they share a vision of a future that's free from plastic pollution. My name is Marcy Trent Long. Our co-host, producer, and sound engineer is Bonnie Ao. Jiaxing Li is the associate producer. A big thank you to our guests: Miko Alino, Akira Sakano, Lakshmi Narayan, Angus Ho, Lily Fur, Mr. Prima Kumara, 
Ashwin Subramanian, Vaughn Hernandez, and Satyarupa Shekhar. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thank you.